look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, a conversation with the coach of the NFC champion Philadelphia Eagles, Doug Peterson. I recorded it about an hour after the NFC championship game, the 38-7 win for the Eagles over the Minnesota Vikings. And... Also joining us this week, Joe Thomas, the all-pro left tackle of the Cleveland Browns. And while he's weighing whether to continue his football career in 2018, he'll share his thoughts on this very, very interesting matchup. And he's got an interesting pick for Super Bowl 52. And also this week, something very special. Jenny Varentis of the MMQB, one of my peers, has written a great story on the relationship between Nick Saban and Bill Belichick, the two coaches at the top of their respective professions. And it was received so well and was so well done that I asked Jenny Varentis to record this story. And we're going to play that for you right after my conversations with Doug Peterson and Joe Thomas. But first... A few thoughts on what is going to be one of the big storylines when the sporting press gets to Minneapolis, and that is, what does this do for the legacy of Bill Belichick and Tom Brady and the legacy of this great, great franchise, the New England Patriots? And I'll be honest with you, I I don't think it's going to do very much. I mean, if you have watched the last generation of football— since the turn of this century, and you've watched Tom Brady get drafted by the New England Patriots in 2000, take over the starting job in 2001, and in the 17 seasons since he has been the starting quarterback of the New England Patriots, take his team to eight Super Bowls. I mean, if you're going to look at all that and just say, well, you know, let's just see if he can win another one. Let's see if he can win a a sixth Super Bowl, and then we'll make a judgment on Tom Brady. Look, I said at the end of last year's Super Bowl when he um, engineered a a a comeback from a 25-point deficit midway through the third quarter to beat the Atlanta Falcons in Super Bowl 51, I said that was it. That convinced me. If Tom Brady never plays another snap, I think he's the greatest quarterback of all time. So Tom Brady has played another snap. He's played about 1,000 more snaps. And he has led the Patriots at age 40, when he's probably going to be named the MVP, to an eighth Super Bowl appearance in 17 seasons as a starting quarterback. I mean, as I say, I don't care what he does in this game. I don't think it changes his legacy one iota. Now let's move on to Belichick. So 
uh, you know, Bill Belichick obviously uh, doesn't have to prove very much else at all, uh, if anything, uh, to be known as, you know, the best coach of this era of football and maybe the best coach of all time. Um, and, and, and so I don't really think that winning a sixth Super Bowl with the same franchise would change much with him particularly. But the one thing about Belichick right now is that, uh, you know, I think rather than thinking about what happens to his legacy, I think we have to think about what happens beyond uh, a week from Sunday. And that question comes in because of the Seth Wickersham ESPN story and because everybody seems to wonder right now, quite honestly, how much longer can Bill Belichick do this? You know, he's 65 years old. Uh, he's been a head coach of the Patriots now since the year 2000, so 18 seasons. And whether there's discord, whether there's not discord, I mean, any person who's done this at the level that he has has to say at some point, is that all there is? Is there anything else to do in my life uh, before I leave this planet that I'd really enjoy doing? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Maybe he'd be happy to, to coach out his days and disappear uh, to Nantucket where he's had a home uh, basically since he was the defensive coordinator of the Giants, uh, you know, 30-plus years ago or 30 years ago. So I, I, I just wonder, and nobody really knows the answer to this, other than the people probably in his closest inner circle. How much longer is Bill Belichick going to coach? So I, I don't really think that that this single game is going to do much for his legacy. I don't think it's going to do a darn thing for uh, Brady's legacy other than putting his greatness so far out for anybody to try to touch uh, down the line. Uh, I, I, I can't see this making a big deal in the way either one of these men is perceived 20, 30, 40 years from now when people are looking at this era of NFL history. And now my conversation with Doug Peterson, presented by State Farm. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. We're here outside the Philadelphia Eagles locker room. I'm here with Doug Peterson, who's going to the Super Bowl, the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. Doug, when I say you're going to be a, a coach in the Super Bowl against Bill Belichick, what's your reaction? you got a huge grin on your face right now. You know, it's, it's sort of surreal. Um, you know, and, 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 and I'm just hoping to maybe one day um, – have as many opportunities as, as, as he has and uh, he's had. And, you know, um, obviously an outstanding job in, in how he's led that organization. And, uh, you know, um, this is obviously my first. And, and you know, we're, we just, you know, we, I just got to get my team ready to play, you know, and, and do what we've done all season long. And, and I think, really but, but I think what was impressive in this game, honestly, is that you expected Nick Foles to be just – I don't want to say a little, uh, you know, holding back or doing whatever, but Nick Foles threw some great balls downfield today. I mean, he, Tremendous he just, throws. He, he, it was just like it's a, it's a it's summer training camp or something. It, it, tremendous. I mean, this is, this is the guy that, that uh, we believed in, that we knew we had. Um, obviously, I was here when we drafted him a few years back, and, you know, um, this is, he's a smart guy, you know, and he's talented, and he's got a big arm, and, and he's just gaining more confidence with the players. You know, he, he, 
he missed all of training camp. He didn't get the reps during the regular season that Carson was getting. So he missed all the timing with Zach Ertz and Alshon and Nelson Aguilar. But now he's had a month of football with these guys, and it's starting to show up on the football field and, and in these games and in, in crucial moments and making these big-time throws. And uh, You threw the ball downfield more in this game than you did last week. Was it simply game plan related, or did you sense anything in Foles this week versus last week? You know, a lot of times, no, I, I just think that, that you just, <coughs> excuse me, each game's different, uh, obviously. Um, you know, we, we, we just, I, I wasn't going to leave anything for Jen. I, I don't want, I wanted to go home tonight, put my head on the pillow and say, you know what, I did everything I could, win or lose, I, I did everything I could to help our football team win. And, 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 if it meant throw the ball down the field, we're going to throw it down the field. If it meant dink and dunk, then we were going to dink and dunk. But, you know, uh, just had confidence in the guys. The offensive line was playing extremely well. The backs were picking up blitz protection and, and, and blitzers. And, and when guys are making plays down the field for your quarterback, it does make it a little bit easier to go ahead and, and dial one up again, knowing that, you know, there's a good chance they make that play. Doug, when you got named the coach of this team, there was some skepticism, both in the press, in the public, oh, it's Andy Reid Jr. or whatever. Okay, so what did you know about your abilities as a coach, a play caller, and a leader that the world didn't know? You know, in, in a lot of time, a lot of situations too, I think just having confidence in myself. I mean, those people that don't know me, there's always going to be skeptic, you know, skepticism, and, and guys are going to be skeptical, and they're going to they're going to talk just because they don't know me internally and who I am, and and sort of how I grew up in this league and playing 14 years and watched a lot of football, and then being being kind of trained by Andy Reid for for you know seven eight years of my career as a coach, and um, all of that shapes who I am, and and I take a little bit of that plus my personality, and 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 blend it into what we're doing, and use the talent that we have on offense and. And, and make it work and, and use, use Frank Reich, who uh, worked with Philip Rivers, who's had a tremendous career, obviously, and he keeps throwing the ball around the, you know, around the field. And, you know, I mix all that together. And at the end of the day, um, I just want to make sure that, I'm, again, I'm doing everything right by this football team. And, and uh, you know, if it's good enough, it is. If it's not, then, then we'll move on. I'm going to ask you two other things. Number one, you go to the West Coast this year, okay? You have a tough game in Seattle, then you go down to Southern California, and you get ready to play the Rams, one of the hottest teams in football. In that game, you lose Carson Wentz. You win the game, you lose Carson Wentz. What was your thinking going back on the plane on that long trip about keeping your team from saying, woe is us? You know, we had, we had won the game, as you mentioned. We won the NFC East at that time. Uh, we were, we were our, our division champs and um, sort of bittersweet, obviously. Um, but but I, knew, I knew we still had a great defense. Um, I knew we still had a great running game. And, and we had a veteran backup quarterback uh, in Nick Foles. And, and it, was just, it was just my job at that point to make sure that, that we got Nick ready to play um, I knew I was going to have to rely on our run game probably a little bit more um, and then and then trust trust our defense and, and what Jim Schwartz has done with our defense and and that was kind of the recipe for the next couple of weeks after that after uh, you know that injury but, to Carson. But, but mentally when you're talking to the team you kind of have to be the adult in the room. You do and you have to exude confidence and it's just got to ooze out of you. You can't 
you can't waver, you can't bat an eye, and you have to trust your players, and, and you have to trust Nick Foles and say, you need to embrace this football team. Yes, it's, it's Carson Wentz's team, but now this is Nick Foles' time, and you need to embrace this. And those are the conversations How we did have. he react when you talked to him about that? He, very well, very well. And, and, and obviously now with these last couple of games that, you, that we, we've seen is – He's getting more comfortable with the guys, and he's really embraced this, and the guys have rallied around him. And now this is this is his team for the remainder of the season. Doug, we'll end with this. Um, a lot of times when you go and play the, a team as good as the Patriots, eight Super Bowls in 18 years, you know, there could be a tendency to sort of make a little more of them than there is. They're a football team like yours. So what will be your message to your team about playing this one of the all-time great teams in the history of football. You know, we get we can't get caught up in that. Um, we can't get caught up in the sort of that mystique and that mystery of uh, of the New England Patriots and the, all the success that they've had. Great quarterback, Hall of Fame quarterback. There's, I mean, hands down, we we all understand that. But we still have to coach. We still have to teach. We still have to prepare. We still have another football game of ourselves to play. And and uh, we feel like we're a pretty good football team going into this game. Um, and we have to rely on that. And the biggest thing is just keep blocking out the noise, eliminate the mental clutter, and let's prepare for the New England You Patriots. really did a pretty good job of doing the us against the world thing. Like Bill Walsh, I always thought was the expert at that. He'd go and play a great team, and he would say, guys, it's just 53 guys and a bunch of coaches, and we're playing a city, a state, a region. We're playing a great team. You've sort of created that here in the last few weeks. You think it's worked? It has worked. It has worked. And, and you know, um, they put on their pants the same way we do and their shoulder pads and their helmet the same way we do. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's just maybe it is us against the world. But, but that's okay. If that's what motivates our guys, it's going to motivate our guys. And, and listen, they, they hear it. They hear it every day that, that we're underdogs at home. We're not good enough. We're not this. Our quarterback is this or that. But they don't. They don't believe it. They don't trust. They don't. They don't. They don't get wrapped up in it. And and uh, they just go out there and play and have fun. <laughs> Doug Peterson, wish you all the best in the Super Bowl. Good luck. Thank you, Peter. This is the MMQB podcast. In need of great talent for your business, but short on time, you don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. You just need the right tools, smarter tools, and that's how ZipRecruiter is different. ZipRecruiter posts your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then, ZipRecruiter actively looks for the most qualified candidates and invites them to apply. They even review every application to identify the top candidates, so you never miss a great match. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Yes, you heard it right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. Now, one more time, try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash 
WMMQB. And now my chat with Joe Thomas of the Cleveland Browns, presented by State Farm. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, I'm joined by Joe Thomas, the all-pro offensive tackle with the Cleveland Browns. Joe, let's talk about all things football, but first, let's talk about all things Joe Thomas. Had to be really, really weird for you after never missing a snap for your entire career, for playing every snap for 10 years, then to be sidelined basically for the last half of this season. What was non-football life like for Joe Thomas? It was definitely interesting. I tried to keep myself involved with the team as much as I possibly could. I wanted to almost take on a little bit of a coaching and a consultant role every week. I would break down the offensive tackles for the opposing team and give them to our defensive line and try to help them think like an offensive lineman, help them understand why a guy has a weakness and how you can take advantage of that weakness. And then I also really enjoyed mentoring our young offensive tackles and trying to do everything I can to help get them ready for Sundays. And then on Sundays, uh, when you're a player, you're so focused on your job, you kind of lose sight of the fact that it is a team game and uh, you don't really get an opportunity to watch everything that's going on. And so I actually kind of enjoyed being a fan a little bit on Sundays, cheering my team on, watching my defense, watching the receivers, watching everything that you don't usually get to focus on when you're playing in a game. And, you know, you had that experience, but now that you, uh, I assume, are rehabbing, you have a little bit of a decision to make. What have you decided after playing 167 NFL games about whether there will be a 168th? <laughs> well, I haven't made a decision yet. I've enjoyed talking to family and friends and spending a little bit of time talking and uh, thinking about the future. Um, and I haven't been able to come to a decision yet. I want to make sure I'm 100% one way or the other before I make any sort of announcement. So, I feel like I'm getting closer, but I'm not there just yet. I would like you to play. Does that matter? <laughs> Absolutely. You've got a lot of play with me, Peter. <laughs> hey, Joe, I have to tell the story of the first time I met you. Can I do that? Absolutely. Okay, so the first time I met you, Sports Illustrated sent me to the campus at the University of Wisconsin. And uh, this would have been in about maybe March 2007. This was before the draft maybe February, but probably March. And I went, you told me uh, to meet you, meet you at your house. And when I walked into your house, there are basically four things that I'll always remember. One, <laughs> you had, uh, you had a, a deer head with big antlers on the wall. This was a, you lived with a, I don't know, three or four of your friends in this big house in Madison. And there was a padded red bra hanging from the antlers <laughs> of this uh, of this deer head. Um, I, I went into your room, and I saw that your laptop was propped up by four rolls of toilet paper, and there was a a keg of Miller Lite in the sink in the kitchen. Uh, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> oh, there was also a, there was also a big circular hole in the floor of your living room. And that hole went down into the basement, maybe like 12 feet. And I'm thinking to myself, now, somebody had to have fallen at some point in that hole. But, but anyway, I said, this is the absolute perfect college house. So what do you remember about that house, Joe? 
I remember those were the good old days, Peter. I don't know if life gets any better than those years we lived in that big, crappy house in Madison. <laughs> it was so much fun. That was good to uh, good to get to know you. And I remember I had um, <clears throat> we went out to dinner, and uh, your now wife Annie was with us, right? Yes. And uh, you guys live are living happily ever after and living the dream in Cleveland with kids now, right? Yep, absolutely. Very good, good. All right, so uh, enough going down memory lane. Let's talk just a little bit about this game coming up. Uh, Patriots-Eagles. You know what really impressed me the other day in watching these games? That I thought Minnesota had an excellent uh, defensive front and, and linebacking group. And the Philadelphia offensive line, I thought, played great. And gave, for the most part, gave Nick Foles a lot of chances to be successful. Give me your thoughts about that game and why Philadelphia survived. Well, I, I think you mentioned Philadelphia's offensive line played great against Minnesota's defensive line, which is one of the best defensive lines in pro football. Uh, Philadelphia's offensive line was always a good offensive line, but they're playing their best football right now, and I think that gives them a big advantage going into the Super Bowl. But for me, I think the story of the Super Bowl is going to be Philly's D-line versus the Patriots' offensive line. It reminds me a little bit of the game from a few years back where it's the New York Giants' defensive line versus the Patriots' offensive line. And Actually, the, the game was really won in the trenches that year. The way the Giants got after Tom Brady was impressive, and they, they hit him early, they hit him off, and they sacked him. They got him off his game, and I really think that the game is going to go a lot like it did back then. I think Philly's defensive line is so good. They're so aggressive. Uh, the way they they intimidate the opposing team's quarterback, they get there, they hit him, they affect his throws, they make him move off of his spot. I think that's going to be a real challenge for Brady, and it'll be a challenge for Belichick and his staff coming up with a plan that'll allow Tom to be able to stand back there and make some of those throws he has to make to win. What's interesting watching the Patriots is that early in games, you go back to the Atlanta game in the Super Bowl, even Tennessee this year, say the first 20 minutes of that game, and I'd say the first 48 minutes of the game against Jacksonville, you really are thinking, man, could this be the day? Could this be the day that this team... Uh, overwhelms the Patriots and just does too much. But to me, Joe, these games with the Patriots, it always seems like they have more clock than everybody else, that they're never really worried. They just keep going. They make you play 60 minutes that many times seem like 70. Why is that? Well, nobody's more well-practiced, more experienced in the two-minute offense. Nobody does a better job getting what they need when the game's on the line. I remember a game in uh, 2012 or 13 when the Browns played the Patriots um, and we had the lead. We were up by more than two scores with, I want to say, under two minutes. The Patriots go right down the field. They score a touchdown. They get a two-point conversion. Then they kick an onside kick, which the chances of getting that are pretty slim. They get the onside kick. They go down. They score another touchdown, and they win the game. And just almost the most improbable fact, uh, factor. And for me, that was almost like a moment where I don't know how we possibly could have lost that game but we did and the only thing I can say is Tom knows what he needs to do in those situations and that whole offense is so well versed in practice and experienced and confident in that situation I almost think they're better playing from a deficit when the game's on the line rather than having to try to protect a lead 
Philadelphia loses Jason Peters, but they still play really, really well on the offensive line. How does New England get to Foles? Well, that's a good question. Philly's done a great job since Foles has been back using the run-pass options, letting Nick Foles do the things that he's comfortable with, Um, not putting the whole game on him, but he's played so outstanding and his confidence is going to be sky-high going into the Super Bowl. I think it's going to be difficult for New England. I think what they're going to have to do is truly just try to blitz him. Um, That should be the game plan. I think early and often that's the way they were able to sort of change the tide a little bit in that Jacksonville game, and I think that should be a similar message. Don't sit back in coverage. Don't try to uh, play the run-pass option. I think you need to get after him. You need to blitz him. You need to try to take away that run game and turn it into a drop-back type game. Last one for Joe Thomas of the Cleveland Browns. So, Joe, if you have to, if you were in Vegas right now and you had $5 burning a hole in your pocket and you're at a sports book, who are you taking? I'm taking Philly. I actually, they'll be the underdogs, but I think they really have a great opportunity to win this game. Joe Thomas, much, much, much appreciated. Really uh, admire you for uh, the football work that you do and also recently the columns you've done for us at the MMQB. And uh, whatever decision you make, I hope it's the right one for you and your family. Thanks, Peter. i got to urge your listeners to follow the Tomahawk podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your iPod uh, podcast because it's tell a good me one. About, tell, me how, tell me about It's you and Andrew Hawkins, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so tell me, just really tell me awesome. a little bit about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a great podcast. We talk mostly football stuff, but we do like to just kind of shoot the breeze and talk about all different types of stuff. But I think it's great. We've got two guys from different walks of life, and uh, we like to disagree without being too disagreeable and really just kind of have fun with it. And it's been really well received. I mean, we've been as high as number two on the sports podcast list on iTunes. Fantastic. Joe, all the best. And uh, uh, you're going to have a really, really good future in this business whenever you decide to uh, stop beating up pass rushers for a living. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Peter. You're listening to the MMQB Podcast. We know all the value of a good night's sleep. I'm out on the road all the time, so believe me, nothing makes me happier than being back home for a good night's sleep thanks to Mattress Firm. And they're going to make your wallet happy too. The base for my argument is simple. Your bed budget can go further when you're shopping at America's neighborhood mattress store. It's like having a touchdown and getting the game ball. They're the head coaches when it comes to mattress expertise. But know this, they're more than just mattress experts. They have a game plan that helps you transform your mattress into a bed. From adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor. They have you literally and figuratively covered up like your favorite cornerback. Go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to see what deals are happening as soon as you finish this show. They even offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low-price guarantee so you know you'll pay the perfect price. Talk about a one-two punch. That's a knockout. So score big with a perfect bed. Head to mattressfirm.com podcast to get the play-by-play on how you can monumentally improve your sleep Today, tonight, and tomorrow. And now, the story by Jenny Varentis of the MMQB on the relationship between Nick Saban 
and Bill Belichick. They agreed to meet in West Point, New York, at a little hotel with a name neither can remember. For two men with deep connections to Navy, the locale was a surprising choice. All the better. This was in the late 1980s, summertime. They were both a couple years away from turning 40, and neither man's name meant then what it does today. Nick Saban flew in from Houston, where he coached the Oilers' defensive backs. Bill Belichick, then the Giants' defensive coordinator, drove up from New Jersey with 16mm film canisters and a projector stashed in his car. They were two assistants from opposing teams, planning to spend the weekend discussing the intricacies of the Cover 2 defense. The rendezvous might have gotten either man fired had their bosses found out about it, so it was conducted with the stealth more befitting of the military academy down the road. We kind of had a secret mission, says Saban, to go where nobody would expect us to be. This was before they worked together, before they competed against one another, before they each built a program that became the only contemporary analog for success of the other. Saban has since won six national titles, one at LSU and five at Alabama. Belichick is trying for a sixth Super Bowl with the Patriots. Their secret mission turned into one of the most significant friendships in football, one based around the very thing that brought them to that hotel in West Point, the realization that they didn't have all the answers and a shared obsession to find them. We are like we are because of that, says Saban. We're always trying to learn to improve the way we do things. The best NFL coach of this generation has been friends for more than 30 years with the best college coach, a fact that is remarkable but not entirely surprising. This is the story of a friendship that has made a lasting impact on the sport. Summer, 1982, Annapolis, Maryland. Steve and Jeanette Belichick set a table for six. Their only son, Bill, was on a break from his job as the Giants linebackers and special teams coach and he was visiting home with his wife, Debbie. Two more guests would join them for dinner, Nick and Terry Saban. Back then, Steve was an assistant and advanced scout for Navy's football team. Over 33 years in that gig, he would grow legendary for his meticulous scouting reports. The screened-in porch at his home, a few miles from the academy, was a gathering spot for the midshipmen's coaching staff, and Bill had been joining them since grade school. Steve was working alongside a new assistant at Navy, just six months older than Bill. Saban had only been in Annapolis a few months, but he'd made an impression. He was intense, he was vocal, he was detail-oriented. All the reasons head coach Gary Tranquil, who'd worked with him previously at West Virginia, had hired him. Saban's job was to coach the secondary, but his coaching points often spilled over to other positions. Saban has always seen the big picture of the defense how all the positions work together. When coaching his safeties on responsibilities and coverage or run fits, he'd end up working with the linebackers too. Nick was always around Steve while we were there, says Chuck Bresnahan, then a senior linebacker at Navy. Steve Belichick really ignited that friendship and that respect level between them. Steve obviously had an influence on who Bill was as a developing coach, and I think he saw something very similar in Nick. The details of that first dinner proved largely unmemorable. They all chit-chatted, as Bill puts it. But an impression had been made. Bill recalls meeting briefly once before, when Saban worked at Ohio State and Bill visited Columbus on a scouting trip. But in his childhood home was where their friendship, like so many parts of Bill's coaching career, truly began. 
My dad had seen a lot of coaches come through the Naval Academy, Belichick says. So when he would say to me, this is one of the best coaches I've worked with, I always kept that in the back of my mind. Late 1980s, West Point, New York. Let's get together sometime, Sabin suggested to Belichick, and talk some ball. That's how the secret mission began. Actually, Sabin corrects himself, he probably begged Belichick to spend a weekend with him, as Belichick was the more experienced coach at the time. Sabin had just been hired to Jerry Glanville's Oilers staff, thanks in part to a recommendation from Belichick, who'd coached with Glanville in Detroit a decade earlier. Belichick, then the Giants' defensive coordinator, had won a Super Bowl on Bill Parcell's staff. He would go on to win another with an innovative defensive game plan for the Bills' Kagon offense in Super Bowl XXV that is now on display in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Working for the Oilers was Saban's first NFL job, and he wanted to pick Belichick's brain about the pro ranks. Belichick agreed, recognizing that Saban saw the game the same way he did. It wasn't just the secondary, which was his forte, Belichick says. He knew what the nose guard was doing, and he knew what the quarterback was reading. He knew how receivers adjusted routes based on coverage. He understood all the components of the game, and that was very interesting for me, because I saw the game that way myself, that everything kind of affects something else. Both of their bosses, however, disapproved of fraternizing with the enemy. Glanville didn't even want his assistants presenting at coaching clinics, lest they divulge too much. So they picked a weekend in the offseason, meeting in a town where they didn't know anyone, holding up for a two-man football summit. There's a tinge of irony in hearing Belichick say, it wasn't like we were giving away any big state secrets, considering the way his Patriots guard information. But this was hardly a recon operation. It was much more two coaches learning from each other's experiences. Belichick had spent many of his years with the Giants coaching linebackers. Saban, who played defensive back at Kent State, had focused on the secondary. Belichick was something of a cover two savant, developing a sophisticated version with the Giants, later referred to as the Belichick II, Saban favored press man-to-man. They talked about the keys they teach their defenders to run against certain offenses. Saban had more familiarity with the increasingly popular run-and-shoot. Those kinds of things would be very helpful to me, Belichick says, because we didn't really face that in the NFC East. Says Saban, I probably learned a lot more than he did. Sabin, surprisingly sheepish for a now 66-year-old head coach, says he'd still rather Parcells and Glanville not know about their West Point mission. It's almost like getting caught doing something you weren't supposed to do when you were a kid, he says. Good thing he didn't. Parcells claims he knew about it at the time, but Glanville only learned about it a few years later. If I'd have known, he would have been fired, the old coach says, with a tinge of mischievousness. Nick was smart enough not to tell us. 1991 to 94, Berea, Ohio. Belichick got his first head coaching job in 91, at age 39, with the Browns, and interviewed 85 potential assistant coaches. But his first hire was the easiest, Saban, as his defensive coordinator. He assembled an all-star staff, including nine future NFL head coaches or GMs, and three coaches who would go on to lead major college programs. But I'm going to tell you, says Bresnahan, the Navy linebacker who joined Belichick's Browns staff as a linebacker's coach. When Bill and Nick walked in the room, there was a different response from players, coaches, everyone. Things got quiet. You knew it was time for business. Well, mostly business. 
Belichick had a loge box at the stadium, and when Pink Floyd came to town in May 94, the band's final tour, he took the whole coaching staff. Saban and wife Terry were known for throwing an annual Kentucky Derby party at their home. Everyone drew a number out of a hat, and that was the horse they'd root for that day. The two most important guests during training camp were Steve Belichick. He'd get down in a three-point stance next to the lineman during goal line blocking drills. And John Bon Jovi, who at least one Brown staffer swears got to lead a two-minute drill once. Other than that, it often seemed like there weren't enough hours in the day to get everything done. Belichick took over a team that had just gone 3-13, and and suddenly the Browns' Berea facility permeated with the same do-your-job mantra that is now associated with Belichick's Patriots. Assistants stopped checking the clock during Tuesday game-planning meetings, where no detail was considered unimportant. One day, Pat Hill made a mistake on a scout team card. Hill would go on to become the head coach of Fresno State for 15 seasons, but in the early 90s, he was Belichick's tight ends coach, with responsibilities that also included diagramming in excruciating detail each play of an opposing offense's game film on what Belichick referred to as the pads, and running the scout team for Saban. Belichick keeps his coaching staff small by keeping their job descriptions long. Hill had misaligned a single player on a lone scout team card. A quarter century later, he still recalls Saban's burn. I remember it graphically, Hill says. He was highly upset. Let's just say it was made very clear to me I didn't have the card right. That was my job, and I didn't do it well that day. I'll promise you, it never happened again. Belichick was trying to install a system of coaching players, evaluating players, assembling a roster. Those conversations he and Saban had at West Point about defense? In Cleveland, it was like 500 times more of that, Belichick says. Saban had spent a year as the head coach at Toledo, and for all of his and Belichick's like-mindedness, they'd been running very different schemes. With the Giants, Belichick used a 3-4, two-gap front, primed for run-stuffing, with mainly cover-two zone on the back end. Saban, meanwhile, had learned from George Perlis at Michigan State the stunt 4-3, an attacking front made famous by the Steel Curtain, and he favored man-to-man coverage. This led to an early lesson in what has been a pillar for both coaches. Be rigid in fundamentals and techniques, but flexible in scheme. Ultimately, it was more of his defense than mine, Belichick says. I learned a lot from him. Carl Banks, a Browns linebacker in 1994 and 95, clarifies. It was Nick's front and Bill's coverages, he says. And then it morphed. That's the hallmark of these coaches. They can hybrid morph anything. In the end, each took something from the other. Belichick was more conservative, and he watched how Saban paired pressure packages with his front to bring blitzers from different spots on the field. And Saban learned from the ways Belichick brought pressure without putting stress on the back end. Their contrasting styles mirrored the yin and yang of their personalities, the subtle but sarcastic Belichick versus the fiery Saban, and they often clashed while game planning. Saban wanted every call at his disposal for a given game situation, Belichick would force his staff to pick one. This is still true today. Bill could get on people, yet when he did it to Nick, it always seemed a little bit different, says Scott Pioli, the Falcons' assistant GM who was then a pro personnel assistant. You can always tell who Bill respects. In fact, Belichick respected Saban so much that, at one point during their four years in Cleveland together, he decided his assistant coaches were no longer permitted to talk to the media. 
When the team's head of PR broke the news, Saban chuckled. The implication, he knows we're good and he doesn't want to lose us. I don't plan to be the defensive coordinator for the Browns for the rest of my life, Saban plainly informed the PR director, so I will probably be talking to the media. Two days later, he was quoted in the Akron Beacon Journal. January 7, 1995, AFC Divisional Playoffs, Browns versus Steelers, Three River Stadium. Beat him once, beat him twice, three times the charm. Steelers Pro Bowl tight end Eric Green spoke confidently into an NFL Films camera during pregame warm-ups. The Browns had lost just five games that season. Two were to the Steelers. Now the division foes were meeting for the third time, with a trip to the AFC Championship game on the line. This was Belichick's fourth season with the Browns, and he was starting to see results. They had the best defense in the league, yielding just 12.8 points per game. In the wildcard round, they defeated the Patriots, coached by Belichick's mentor, Bill Parcells. All along, Saban had told Belichick he'd only leave for a good job, not just to take a job. Succeeding his former boss, George Perlis, as the head coach of Michigan State was that job. Rick Venturi, Brown's DB's coach, had driven Saban to the airport for his interview. When Saban returned, he was certain he wasn't going to get it. Don't worry about it, Venturi told him. You're destined for a big one. The next day, Saban was offered the position. For now, he was standing on the sidelines next to Belichick. Both coaches were wearing those puffy brown and orange starter jackets specific to the early 90s. The temperature for the 12.30 p.m. kickoff was right around freezing, and not long after it started to sleet. Lewis Riddick, then a safety for the Browns, recalls Steelers linebacker Greg Lloyd coming out for warm-ups flexing in his 60-minute men t-shirt. Riddick was starting just his second game of the year. Earlier that season, playing the money linebacker spot in the dime defense, terminology Saban uses today at Alabama, he'd blown some assignments. On one play, he read the release of the back wrong and gave up a third down conversion. Saban reamed him on the sideline and promptly yanked him. Later, Saban came to him privately and told him he had a choice. You sulk, and I guarantee you'll never get back on the field. You keep working, and you'll have a chance to earn it back. In the final game of the regular season, starting safety Stevon Moore went down with an injury. You're in, Saban told him. It's probably the biggest lesson I learned in pro football, Riddick says. Riddick started the first playoff game, the win over the Patriots, and picked off Drew Bledsoe. He was so certain he'd get a game ball that in the team meeting he started to get up out of his seat when Belichick was about to announce the winner. Eric Turner, Belichick said. Turner, the other starting safety, quickly flipped the ball to Riddick, saying he deserved it instead. As he was walking down the stairs of the theater, Bill's eyes met Belichick's stare, and the coach said in his trademark monotone, See if you can do it next week. In different ways, Saban and Belichick knew the right motivational buttons to push. At the start of the NBC broadcast, color commentator Paul McGuire predicted the best defensive game we've seen all year. That changed quickly. While the Browns' offense opened with a bad case of the drops, the stingiest defense in football couldn't stop the run. Behind a road-grading offensive line, Steelers running backs Barry Foster, Bam Morris, and John L. Williams ran through gaping holes and arm tackles. After the Steelers jumped out to a 17-0 lead, their players began waving terrible towels on the field, and Banks returned to the sideline roaring in frustration. I remember us losing our composure on defense because we couldn't stop the run, Riddick says. 
The sidelines became very contentious. I remember Nick trying to calm us down, but we were getting frustrated because they were physically manhandling us that day in a way that no one had done. They beat us up on the ground, and we just couldn't stop it. And that was a little bit surreal. It was surreal how the Steelers racked up rushing yards against two of the greatest defensive minds in football. 157 in the first half, 238 by the end of the game. If they could have beaten the Steelers, many players thought they could have made it to the Super Bowl. Instead, it was the beginning of the end in Cleveland. Final score, Steelers 29, Cleveland 9. Saban left for Michigan State. Ten months later, during the 95 season, owner Art Modell announced he was moving the team to Baltimore. Belichick was fired at year's end, and the city of Cleveland hasn't seen an NFL playoff win in 23 years. This is the MMQB Podcast. QB Podcast. State Farm knows that for football fans, your car and your home are more than just stuff. They're some of your most valuable possessions. Whether it's the truck that gets you to every tailgate or the place where you watch your favorite team with your favorite people. But life can be a real tough opponent. So when it comes to insuring your car or home, you need a strong defense, like State Farm. Because they know it's more than just a car or a house. So why not give it the protection it deserves? It's just one more way they're here to help life go right. Talk to a State Farm agent today. January 2000, Foxborough, Massachusetts. On his first morning as head coach of the New England Patriots, a FedEx package arrived on Bill Belichick's desk. Inside was a resume, plus film breakdowns and scouting reports, rigorously prepared to the specifications of Nick Saban. Nick called, Belichick says. He said, you've got to hire this guy. He's one of the best I've ever had. Honestly, you get a thousand names like that when you are a new head coach, believe me. But when Nick recommends somebody like that, you know he doesn't recommend 50 guys to you. Belichick hired a 24-year-old Michigan State graduate assistant named Brian Dayball for a defensive quality control job. Dayball spent the next two years in that role. Insiders call it a 2020 gig because you work 20 hours a day for less than $20,000 a year. When a higher-paying offensive position came open, I told him, look, I'd love to give you more responsibility. But this job that you have is really an important job, Belichick says. If you find me somebody who can break down film as good as you can, I'll get you out of this job tomorrow. No problem, Dayball said. He had someone in mind, Josh McDaniels, who'd been a fellow GA at Michigan State under Saban. A year later, Belichick had the same conversation with McDaniels, who suggested Nick Casario, a former teammate at John Carroll University in Northeast Ohio. Today, McDaniels is Belichick's offensive coordinator. Casario is the Patriots' director of personnel. Dayball was Saban's offensive coordinator at Alabama last season. Last week, he accepted the same position with the Buffalo Bills. And it all started with Nick, Belichick says. Obviously, Nick and my relationship is the strongest chain. But there are certainly a lot of other ones that are pretty strong, too. It's all part of the Belichick-Saban, what do you want to call it? He pauses. I don't know if legacy is the right word. November 2005, Annapolis, Maryland. Steve Belichick was in his usual press box seat for Navy's 38-17 win over Temple on November 19th. This was part of his Saturday routine. He called his son after the game, 
and later that night he was in his chair in the house with the porch watching college football on TV. USC was playing Fresno State, coached by Pat Hill, whom he'd often shared a morning coffee with during Brown's training camps in the early 90s. In the middle of the night, Bill got a phone call. Steve, 86, had died of heart failure. Belichick coached the Patriots that Sunday, a 24-17 home win over the Saints. Then he headed home. It was the week of Thanksgiving, but that didn't stop 200-some people from coming to Annapolis to pay their respects. Patriots owner Robert Kraft, Giants general manager Ernie Corsi, Notre Dame coach Charlie Weiss, and the coach of the division rival Dolphins, Nick Saban. Because it wasn't just a coaching relationship, Saban says. It was a friendship that had a lot of respect for the coaching part of it. Saban and Scott O'Brien, his coordinator of football operations with the Dolphins and Belichick's special teams coach in Cleveland, flew up for the wake. It was held on a Tuesday, a day when players are off, but coaches work late into the night, building the game plan. To understand the meaning of his gesture, consider that one year later, during Saban's second training camp with the Dolphins, he turned down a dinner invitation from the President of the United States. George W. Bush had invited him to Joe's Stone Crabs, the century-old Miami Beach establishment, along with three members of the perfect 1972 Dolphins team and Hall of Fame quarterback Dan Marino. Saban's reason for skipping the dinner? He had a responsibility to be with his team. I know how hard it is during the season to do something like that, Belichick says, but that speaks to the friendship he had with my dad and the closeness of our families. At a press conference in South Florida, the week of Steve's passing, Saban gave Bill the highest possible compliment. He saluted his father. If the truth was ever known and he had the opportunity, Saban said, it may be that he was a better coach than Bill. December 10, 2006, Miami Gardens, Florida. Jason Taylor lined up all over the field. He had his hand in the dirt on both the left and right sides of the formation. He lined up wide of the tackle and inside. He was a stand-up rusher. He dropped into coverage. This was the kind of deployment Saban had promised Taylor in early 2005 when the new Dolphins head coach phoned his star defensive player. He'd heard rumblings Taylor was wary of moving from a 4-3 defensive end to a 3-4 hybrid in the system Saban was bringing to Miami. Trust me, Saban told Taylor. You'll be a Hall of Famer in this defense. Taylor, on an off-season vacation in Key West, says he was ready to turn the boat around and go right to practice after talking to Saban. Taylor had already played eight seasons in the NFL and been named All-Pro three times as a pass-rushing end who, as he puts it, only played the run on the way to the quarterback. But Saban challenged him to expand his repertoire as a player, promising that the payoff would come and more opportunities to make plays. The result? Taylor was the 2006 Defensive Player of the Year at age 32. This is what the Patriots were up against in Week 14 of the 2006 season at a venue where Tom Brady, despite three Super Bowl rings, actually had a losing record. They were 9-3 on their way to another AFC East title and jockeying for playoff seeding. The Dolphins were 5-7, gaining a little bit of traction after losing six of their first seven games. This was the fourth time Belichick and Saban had faced each other as NFL head coaches. Belichick had won two of the first three, and their friendship was nary the focus it had been the first three times around. 
During the CBS broadcast, play-by-play announcer Dick Enberg referenced it only twice. It was hard for me and hard for him when he was in Miami, Belichick says. Not that there was any animosity. It's just hard when you're competing against somebody like that in the same division. All that being said, we still had a strong personal relationship. But once he left Miami, that made it a lot easier. Then we were able to continue to help and work with each other. On this afternoon in December, Brady seemed to be under duress more often than not. Belichick had been stumping for Taylor as Defensive Player of the Week all week long, and this was more than his typical strategy of blowing smoke at his team's opponent. One of the many testaments to Nick, Belichick says, is what he did with Jason Taylor. Taylor agrees with Belichick. The best years of his career were played under Saban. It's tough saying this in Miami because he doesn't have a whole lot of fans here, Taylor says but I'd run through a brick wall for Nick. Brady was sacked four times. He lost one of his two fumbles. He threw for just 78 yards, the second lowest output of his career when playing in all four quarters. With his team trailing 21-0 and a little less than five minutes left, Belichick sent backup Matt Castle out for what would be New England's final drive. Color commentator Randy Cross speculated it was to save Brady from the physical beating as much as anything else. It was the last time Tom Brady was shut out. It was the last time Belichick and Saban coached against each other. And it was Saban's final win as an NFL head coach. Haunted by the organization's decision to pass over Drew Brees in favor of Dante Culpepper in free agency before the 06 season, a call Saban has since said was made by the team doctors, the Dolphins lost their final three games. Saban was unhappy, and the day after a season-ending loss to the Colts, Less than two weeks after famously declaring he would not be the Alabama coach, he talked with Tide officials. It's a mark of Saban's impact on those Dolphins that, in the 19 regular season games after that whitewash of New England, the Patriots went 19-0, and the Dolphins went 1-18. Taylor, who recently found that 2006 game plan against the Patriots in his garage, says he thinks all the time about what would have happened if the team had picked Breeze and Saban had wanted to stay. He talked about it with a friend three days after Saban's sixth national championship. I might have a ring, Taylor says. I'm confident we would have gotten it done. Fall 2009, Foxborough, Massachusetts. Floyd Reese heard a familiar call in the Patriots' practice field. One rat. It was a coverage call, putting the defensive backs in man-to-man press coverage with one safety deep and a free rat player looking to steal the ball in inside-breaking routes. Reese, who'd come to work for Belichick as a senior football advisor, chuckled. He knew where he'd heard that before, as a linebacker's coach on Glanville's Oilers staff, where Saban got his NFL start. In football, ideas and terminology spread around the league as coaches move around. This is not unusual. Nor is a rat defense a totally unique term. But there in Foxborough, 20 years after the secret mission to West Point, 15 years after Belichick and Saban had worked together in Cleveland, Reese heard a direct link to Saban. We used it because we played so much man-to-man in Houston, Reese says. I think Nick used it the same way, and I think Bill used it in a similar fashion. That daggum Saban, Glanville grouses. July 2010, Jackson, Mississippi. Some 1,500 high school coaches from across Mississippi had gathered at a hotel for the state's annual coaching clinic. The speaker this morning, Nick Saban, months removed from winning his first title at Alabama, 
His topic was building a championship. Everybody knows who Bill Belichick is, right? Saban asked the room rhetorically. I worked four years for the guy, and the guy is great, organized. But I will tell you one thing he does. He defines what everybody in the organization is supposed to do. During his hour-long presentation, Saban referred to his Browns days more than once. For example, not every player can be coached the same, a lesson he learned when he discovered that Everson Walls, a newly signed free agent defensive back, couldn't backpedal. So Saban taught him to move with receivers by turning his hips and shuffling at an angle instead. Saban ended his presentation by sharing a trademark defensive strategy that he uses at Alabama. Pattern matching, a zone coverage that turns into man as a pass pattern develops. It's different from a basic zone in which defenders drop to a spot, and it's an important strategy today against spread offenses that have both a run threat and multiple passing options. This started at the Browns, Saban said, explaining how he and Belichick came up with this way of playing man and zone coverage at the same time, giving defenders maximum flexibility. It was creative enough that he was presenting it at a clinic some 16 years later. March 8, 2017, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Phil Savage, a scout on Belichick's Brown staff, and later an NFL GM, was standing next to his old boss at Alabama's Pro Day. They looked around the field house, admiring the Crimson Tide's latest crop of NFL-bound talent, from cornerback Marlon Humphrey, defensive tackle Jonathan Allen, to tight end O.J. Howard, to linebacker Reuben Foster. Savage told Belichick about the book he was writing, Fourth and Goal, Every Day connecting those old Cleveland days with the empire Saban has built in Tuscaloosa. The proof was all over the field. He's really built a complete program here, Belichick said to Savage. Belichick's Browns established what they called three critical factors for every position, the non-negotiable criteria players needed in order to perform the jobs coaches will ask of them. Cornerbacks, for example, needed to be able to tackle, play the ball in the deep part of the field, and play man-to-man. They added in height-weight speed preferences, 6 feet, 180 pounds, run less than 4.5. The greatest impact for me, even though we stayed friends for a long time, was systematically learning about evaluating personnel for four years, Saban says. Look up and down the Alabama roster and nearly every cornerback fits this rubric. Belichick, in putting together a roster under the salary cap, has to compromise in some areas. Height is one, but he too adheres to the critical factors theory. When the Browns relocated, becoming the Ravens, Ozzie Newsome and Savage turned the same idea of three critical factors into triangles of success. Saban's base defense in Alabama uses Belichick's old 3-4 Giants front. Belichick, meanwhile, picks Saban's brain about the elements of college offenses trickling up to the NFL. How do you handle this? How do you handle that? Belichick says. Maybe it's not even what you're doing. It's just how you're reading it, what you're telling the guy to look at. The gatekeeper to Saban's office in Tuscaloosa is Linda Leone, the administrative assistant who used to type up coaches' notes in Cleveland in the 90s, miraculously managing to read everyone's handwriting. Over the decades, their meetings, not so secret any longer, have taken place in Tuscaloosa, in Indianapolis during the scouting combine, at Saban's house in East Lansing, one week in the late 90s when Belichick stayed while one of his sons attended Saban's football camp. Can you remember every time you met one of your friends, Saban asks? It's been a long, long time that we've done things like that. 
I don't think I would be as good of a coach if I didn't have the experiences that I had with Bill. In fact, I know I wouldn't. January 8th, 2018, Atlanta, Georgia. Jason Taylor and his two teenage sons watched from their home in the Fort Lauderdale suburbs as Alabama played Georgia in the national championship game. Crimson Tide fans, on account of their dad's former coach, 15-year-old Isaiah and 13-year-old Mason were dejected at halftime, their team trailing 13-0. Taylor reminded them of another game they'd attended less than a year ago, Super Bowl 51, when Belichick's Patriots surged back from a 28-3 third-quarter deficit to claim their fifth ring. These two guys are best friends, so trust me, Taylor told his sons at halftime. The best pro coach did it last year, and the best coach in college football is going to have something. Taylor, like many of the 77,430 fans inside Atlanta's Mercedes-Benz Stadium, was at first skeptical that turning to Tua Tagovailoa, the true freshman quarterback for the second half, was the right something. But two quarters and one overtime period later, Saban was hoisting his fifth national championship trophy in nine seasons. Saban's latest win sparked the perennial speculation about whether now was the time when he might take another run at the NFL. Belichick, who watched the end of Alabama's win during the Patriots' first-round playoff bye, has been the subject of his own round of speculation after ESPN reported that some members of the organization think this could be the last season together for Belichick, Brady, and Kraft. They're both in their mid-60s, and it seems unlikely their coaching paths will ever intersect on opposing sidelines again. Perhaps the greatest indication of how Belichick feels about Saban is that he wouldn't want them to. I mean, I wouldn't want to face him, Belichick says. Obviously, if the circumstances fell that way, then we would compete against each other like we did in 05 and 06. But I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I would look forward to that. It would be tough. It would be very challenging. Over dinner at Belichick's parents' house, one summer in the early 1980s, he met the one person about whom he'd say that, the only person in the sport who would become his coaching peer. Thanks to my guests, Doug Peterson, Joe Thomas, and Jenny Varentis. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Chris Mortensen, Drew Brees, and Tom Brady. You can find these on the MMQB.com or Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the fine folks at Cadence 13 for their production work and for working overtime on this podcast. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, State Farm, Mattress Firm, and Zip Recruiter. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week. I'll be in Minneapolis for a special Super Bowl podcast.